This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's more important ever today than pre-COVID. You know, I always was talking pre-COVID that it, this is an important thing to do. We need to do it. I wanted to shift you know, it's a paradigm shift for the industry to actually think about costs like this. But today, post-COVID, it's more important than ever because they're getting hit on every aspect of cost. Commodity costs are changing at such a rapid rate that we have to respond to them. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of different topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. My guest is Mark Kellenhofer, who is the president and CEO of Return on Ingredients, LLC. Mark is an international speaker and author on recipe costing and menu engineering. He has more than 25 years of experience in bottom line boosting accounting. After graduating from Ohio Dominican University with his undergraduate degree, he immediately went into manufacturing accounting. He spent eight years in various industries, including plastic injection molding, lighting equipment, transit buses, and tire repair products. Now, Mark incorporates his extensive background. I only touched on just a little bit, but he incorporates his extensive background throughout this episode as he discusses his entrepreneurial mindset. But I'd be remiss without putting in the intro that he is on faculty at the Ohio State University and at Georgetown University. Now, one of his business ventures, the Restaurant Institute, Listen for this piece when it comes up in the interview because there's a great story about how he derived the name and how it has evolved in his business. Before we get to the interview, just a few housekeeping items. Off Script, Mastering the Art of Business Improv is available for purchase on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. If you want to learn more about the book or order a copy, go to offscriptimprov.com 
and order your copy by clicking the click to order button. It takes you right to the Amazon site. If you want to buy 10 or more books, please contact me so I can offer you a bulk discount. You can reach me through my email at peter at petermargaritas.com. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and share this episode with a friend. I would greatly appreciate if you leave a review of this show wherever you download your podcast from. Also, please visit my YouTube channel, Peter A. Margarita, CSP, CPA, Biz Improv Virtuoso, where you can see previous podcast video episodes along with this one. And while you're there, just hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any updates. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on-site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders. A story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. Would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and Certified Speaking Professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in person and on site at your location, or at an off site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now, let's get the interview with Mark Kellenhoff. Welcome back, everybody. Um, actually, today is my first podcast interview hosted in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And uh, my guest today is, as you heard, is Mark Kellenhofer. And Mark, first and foremost, thanks for taking time out of <laughs> your busy schedule to be on this podcast with me. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. I know you and I go back for quite a, quite a few years, but uh, we finally got to, to make the connection. Well, yeah, we had to, we had to reschedule this a couple of times due to my move and, and some other things, but we finally were able to figure it out. And, and we go all the way back. I don't remember the year, but it was back at, at Ohio Dominican University. Yeah, I, yeah, we both actually taught uh, accounting there, and yeah, I don't, I can't even tell you how far back that was. So they had to. Let's just pick a year. Let's say two thousand four. <laughs> but it's something like that. I mean, we don't yeah. for a lot of time. We live in the same, basically the same city, Westboro, Ohio. Our paths over the years kind of just kind of crossed periodically and we kind of fell off the radar. But you, you had asked me to speak at one of your conferences that you host. We're going to talk more about that because it really got me thinking. You used to work for Bravo Brio Restaurant Organization. And back in 2009, you left and you started this company called Return on Ingredients. So that entrepreneurial spirit lives in you completely because we'll talk about the other things to do. But tell me about that thought process when, when they decided it's time to leave the Bravo restaurant and start your own business. Yes. I, so let me tell you a little bit more about that. So my uh, background, as, as you know, but uh, is 
it started in manufacturing accounting. I was a cost accounting industry for 10 years. And, you know, as you know, those, it's a very analytical position. And uh, I loved everything about what I was doing in industry. Uh, and it was a wide variety of different types of things that I got exposed to in manufacturing. But then I got a call one day with Bravo Brio Restaurant Group in 2002 to come join them. And what I found out quite quickly was that they really had no clue what their cost structure was. Not at all. I mean, they, they had a partial idea on ingredients, but not 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 too very analytical, not what I was used to in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so when I got there, I really started thinking about applying managerial cost concepts to the restaurant industry. And so if you think about that, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, raw materials and direct labor and overhead. Well, you know what, you know, a restaurant technically is a manufacturer. Yep. The ingredients are the raw materials. They're modifying those ingredients. There's definite processes that happen. It's a very scientific calculation when you talk about densities, weights, measures, yields. And, you know, direct labor is that chef or bartender that's producing the product for you. Yep. And they have overhead just like anybody else. So when you talk about menu engineering and the ability to plan for profitability, it's, it becomes such a great tool because now we do know our total cost. And really one of the reasons why I got into an entrepreneurial role is that I looked at the industry as a whole and I saw that the restaurant failure rate is, was huge. Mm -hmm. So right there, there's a piece of of something where I was like, there might be something to this, you know? Mm -hmm. And at Bravo Brio Restaurant Group, when I actually applied those concepts, it was a definite paradigm shift, right? We, we looked at costs differently. Mm -hmm. We treated it differently. We were able to benchmark performance in every component of cost. And we made sure that we were driving profitability and cash to the bank, right? And as part of that, I was able to reduce their cost line five consecutive years in a row. And it was big dollars in savings. So I knew, not only did I know conceptually that everything could work, I actually had a case study now where I had big dollar results as a, from that. And before I left Bravo, I went ahead and I interviewed other restaurant operators that are in town here. And there's a lot of restaurants that you know in Columbus were the test market for many, many different chains. And, um, you know, I saw that there was the similar lack of controls and in some cases, even lack of recipe documentation. So I knew that the need was great, right? Mm -hmm. I knew that the operators were out there, they weren't too methodical. And, you know, in, in addition to that, what I found out from speaking at a lot of different hospitality management schools, culinary schools, is I really saw that the, on the academic side, there was a lack of instruction on cost controls or how to develop a cost or even hospitality accounting courses, the basics of how to read a financial, you know, or even more importantly, an entrepreneurship course.
Yep. Yes, I saw all these things come together and I really felt that this was a niche. There's not too many people. I bet if you look uh, and, and try to search, you probably wouldn't, would not find maybe anybody that does managerial cost accounting for a recipe. Right. And that's really how return on ingredients start in 2009 is from that. I did do some research and I wanted to be methodical myself before I made that jump. So I, I do tell the story. I, I remember that I actually came out to one of the Brio Bravo restaurants and you were showing me around and you were you were you were showing me uh, the cost control pieces that you were put in place from, you know, measuring out weights, that whole aspect of it. And, and having spent <laughs> enough years in the restaurant business, I went, that, this is really cool what, you, what you've done. And it really is because you've helped, just like I'm, I'm looking at your sign and behind you, controlling food and beverage costs to improve efficiency and profit. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing around that is that you're now able to control every aspect of cost. And the reason why that's more important ever today than pre-COVID, you know, I always was talking pre-COVID that this is an important thing to do. We need to do it. I wanted to shift, you know, it's a paradigm shift for the industry to actually think about costs like this. But today, post-COVID, it's more important than ever because they're getting hit on every aspect of cost. Commodity costs are changing at such a rapid rate that we have to respond to them. Mm-hmm. Labor costs are way up, including benefits. Mm-hmm. And then there's some overhead costs that are being pressured on too. So, you know, the electricity and natural gas and some of the supplies they're buying, they're all going up in cost. So I used to say before COVID that the restaurant industry is probably one of the most difficult businesses to be in. And today I say it's definitely the most difficult business to be in because they have so many things they have to respond to. And, you know, labor is the big one. And that, that labor costs, but then finding people to work in this post-COVID, I mean, a lot of restaurants have had to either limit hours. I wanted sushi one day and, and I went to this restaurant and that was part of the order, but it was later in the afternoon. And they said, we're out of rolls. We, we, we can't find enough sushi chefs to basically yep. staff us 24-7. But, so on Tuesdays, they come in and just make enough rolls and they leave. And when we sell out, we sell out. Right. And, and the other thing you'll see sometimes, and I've seen this, is that have you ever walked into a restaurant where part of the restaurant's closed because they don't have enough waiters or waitresses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, labor, the labor, it's definitely a big issue. They're, I don't want to say they're fighting, but they're definitely competing against each other for that quality labor pool. If, but there is a, a limitation on the skill sets that they can get. You know, they, you know, I have a restaurant here in town that told me, you know, hey, we did our staffing, but I can tell you that the skill sets are not what we expected. And we're actually paying a premium for them. You know? Yeah. It's, it's almost like, here, let me put this mirror underneath your nose. You can fog it up. You're hired. Yeah, 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 yeah. Today, uh, you know, the real issue when I teach this, when I speak at trade shows or teach, you know, one of the things I, I say it's it's that this data that we're gathering is to help us respond. And to, today, they have to respond quickly, right? Yeah. So, if there's an increase in a commodity, a food commodity, they have to now respond 
quicker than ever because if they don't, you know, they take a hit on cost and it's not acceptable anymore just to let that cost increase go, right? right. So they have to have the mechanisms in place, but they also have to understand how to make those decisions, proper decisions on how to make sure the company continues to be profitable and successful because you can make a bad decision very easily. I mean, it's incredibly easy. So if you don't have the proper data in front of you, I've seen some restaurants make decisions off of, you know, you know sometimes quantity owned, right? You, we have this, this thing that we're taught in, in accounting class, you know, cost, volume, profit, right? right. And, uh, you know, I tell my students, you know, is quantity always the most important thing? And it's really not what's the most important is the profitability every one of those menu items drives. Mm -hmm. So I've seen people that uh, they'll pull something off that might have a lower quantity in sales, but technically it had a higher profitability and it just hurt themselves in the foot, right? Shot themselves. <laughs> yeah. And the bottom line all of a sudden is taking a hit because they didn't look at all the components. Right. Right. So help me here. So 2009, you started returning ingredients, but then Basically, almost four years later, you started this restaurant institute. What what yeah, what, so, what 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 was the thought process into that? Well, first of all, it's kind of a funny story. So, cool. and you'll enjoy this. So, I uh, was speaking at some trade shows. Right? So, one of the things I did to help promote what I was doing for return on ingredients was that I was going to different trade shows and speaking. I wanted to become the the authority on cost management. Mm -hmm. And so the first year I did it, maybe I did three shows, right? And um, and over time, as I did it, I got really good at it. Mm -hmm. And prior to COVID happening, I probably did close to 35 shows that year. Okay. And, but what happened was that I was at these trade shows and some of the attendees were saying, yeah, you should write a book. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I don't <laughs> I don't know if I can do that, but I ended up writing a book, right? Self-published. Okay. I literally did all the desktop layouts. I did the cover design. I did everything, right? But I didn't want the book to have Kellen Humphrey and publishing on the back, right? So I went out in 2012 and I couldn't believe it. Restaurant Institute was available. I went to GoDaddy and it was there. So I grabbed it, restaurantinstitute.com. And I put the law, I created a website, but I put the logo on the back of the book, right? Cool. And when I went to these trade shows, you wouldn't believe the response. You know, a lot of the attendees are flipping the book over and they would see the Restaurant Institute logo and they were like, well, he's nationally published. And I didn't want to tell them it was just me cranking out this book, right? But that's how it really got started because I wanted a brand on the book, right? And, um, <laughs> That's a funny way to start a company, but it had a purpose, right? The whole idea yeah. was to sell the book and promote what I was doing on return on ingredients. So then after that, Restaurant Institute actually grew, right? So instead of just books, you know, we got into, we have our own periodical now that comes out every quarter called Food, Beverage, and Labor Cost Control Quarterly. And it's a digital publication. It's been in really? place for five years. And we also created our, our own conferences. So what I did is I was speaking and traveling all over the nation and sometimes outside the nation. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, I should just create a, a conference in Columbus, right? Have them come to me. Why, why am I doing all this traveling, right? Yeah. So I created this cost, very specific cost control conference. And it's called the uh, Food and Beverage, Food Beverage Labor Cost Management Summit. And I started it here in Columbus, believe it or not, seven years ago. Yeah. And it's been in place that many years. And now we've grown that conference to Washington, D.C., Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to Charlotte, North Carolina next year. So the conference component or the educational components has been growing. And we're now getting into um, management and training and training modules on it. And that's that's a work in progress, but it's soon going to be announced that we are are going to be able to provide online training specific for hospitality arena. Um, and we're getting into the training piece. So it's a company that started really kind of oddly, but now it's got its own legs and it really has, has grown into something quite different than when it first started. Such a great story. <laughs> it's such a great story, Mark. That, that is, that is impressive. What you, the idea to come up to have the publisher restaurant Institute and how that has taken off. And, and, and so what, how did you pick, I know why you probably picked DC cause you, you, you're an adjunct lecturer at Georgetown university. So is right. that, was that okay. Louisville and Charlotte. What, what, what was the ideas around those two? Other than you wow. might like bourbon a lot. When I create a new city or want to go into a new city, I always want a partner. Now okay. like Daniel, as you know, I got, thousands of connections yeah but i want a partner to help support what the event's about help promote it and so i don't go into a new city unless i have some sort of partnership with okay. it okay so when i look at louisville we we have a partner there with the kentucky restaurant association they want the conference to be in louisville kentucky and they are willing to help promote that conference as well as us, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even provide speakers, things like that. So in, in Charlotte, it's Johnson and Wales University, right? So we, we're working with them directly for the same purpose. They want to have the event on their campus. So when I have these partnerships, the to start out a conference in a brand new city, the first year goes off a lot better than not having a partnership. And so we make sure we have those types of connections or, or relationships built before we ever launch something. And I, I think that component is so critical. You know, you know, when I started the one in Columbus, I had a lot of contacts in Columbus, but I didn't really have a partner in Columbus, you know, and it's so difficult to get people to come to meetings. And so you really gotta have dynamic speakers, you gotta promote it properly, you gotta have the right content. And, and so having a partner to promote what that's all about, just assist in being able to get into these different cities. So the, the school in Charlotte, do they have, a, is it a food and beverage school? Is it, is it a university, but they have a food and beverage uh, hospitality major? Yeah, so Johnson Wales, that's a well-known mm -hmm. hospitality school. You know, it's probably one of the top hospitality schools in the nation. So I obviously wanted to partner with them. So I, I've, you know, I've been talking with them and they're very interested in launching this conference next year. But that's how, you know, I got, you, you'll laugh at this too. I went to Half Price Books one day 
And I picked up, believe it or not, a directory, a national directory of all the hospitality management schools in the nation. Really? It's not a print, right? So I will never loan this book out to anybody, but I have it, right? But I, I use that as a resource to know where all the programs are. And I know over time from speaking where all the prestigious programs are. And we try to build relationships with those universities and schools. But um, I now have all the national programs at the at my fingertips where I can reach out. If I, if I want to go to any city for that matter, I can reach out and actually tap onto you know, the program chair, the, the director of the program, and be able to create those relationships. Well, I have to ask this question now, does Oklahoma State, are they in your um, directory? Is what? Is Oklahoma State, do they, I don't, I'm gonna look uh, it up. Do they have a hospitality major or whatever? Uh, I'm just curious. At my disposal, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's sorted by state and I, I took the time to put it into a spreadsheet. Of course you did. Of course I did, because I wanted to make sure that it was an electronic file. Right. I got the book here, too, so we can look at the book. Now, this book is out of print, so we'll see how current it is by looking it up. But that would be another OSU. That would be another OSU. Yeah. (laughs) There's three of them in the U.S., and you might as well try to get all three of them in your your stable. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, but we'll see here. Let's see what we got. Oklahoma, okay, so they do have, an, on this directory, we have one that's actually in Oklahoma City, which is a technical school. It's not right. OSU. Right. But then it says Oklahoma State, is it Oklahoma? It, it must be a branch where they have a hospitality management program. Okay, okay. So it might not be on the main campus, but it looks like it's at a branch. I will, I will, I will, I will look that up for you. Maybe back then it was on a branch. Maybe it's now on main campus. I will get, I will find that information out and send it to you. Say so there you go. Say so there you go. It's all about connections. So that, that's been going on, and and that's how we got reconnected. You called me one day and said, "Hey, I got a speaker that bailed on me. Can you come and speak at this restaurant conference?" I said, "Absolutely. Let's let's do it." I did it. I enjoyed it. I, I clearly, I, I was not speaking. I was doing more of the management training and, and, and leadership aspects of it. But I did meet it at, uh, the one of the partners of Fido. Yeah. Uh, and we've had a couple of conversations uh, over the past since since April. Uh, and we were just about ready to get together and, and have another side conversation. But I moved. But I told him when I come back, uh, when I have time, we're going to get together and talk. Nice guy. I, I, interesting Scott story. Scott yeah, Scott Neff. He, he wrote an, I've got his book and, and, and I've read it. At, uh, uh, I forgot what it's titled now. Right, he, he's a partner of Dodge, Bob. Yeah. And yeah. I'm in contact with him quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so you, you've done that. And I've mentioned that you're uh, an adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University. You started that in 2018, but you are a lecturer at the OSU, not OSU, it's the OSU now because it's, and how did that happen? I mean, um, well, that's a kind of a funny story, too. So um, I ended up what uh, I was at a trade show, I think out of state and somebody from Ohio State was in the crowd. Right. And I said, well, you know, I live right down the road. You know, and I, and you didn't have to come all the way out here to come see me. speak. You know? 
<laughs> and so, but they ended up, um, they ended up inviting me to come speak as a guest speaker to the hospitality management program at Ohio State. And I, I said, sure, I'd be glad to do it. It's right down the road. And so I came in and I spoke for an hour to the students there as well as the faculty. All the faculty were there and the, their board was there and all that. And um, I ended up getting the offer maybe six months later to come teach the cost control course there. And um, so it really came out of a speaking engagement. And so I'm a firm believer that this whole educational marketing aspect really works well. Right. So. You know, when I go to a trade show and I'm in front of a bunch of professionals, you know, if they're in front of me at my session, they're almost like pre-qualified leads mm -hmm. because they need some help on cost or menu engineering or profitability. And so, you know, every time I would do a trade show, I'd walk out the door with a bunch of tra uh, business cards, you know, mm -hmm. as leads, you know, but it also led to things like Ohio State. You know, where, you know, if I if I didn't do all that speaking, I would never have that opportunity. Absolutely. I want to. So when you and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to. But these speaking engagements that you got at these trade shows, were they were they pro bono or were you collecting at least travel expenses to cover or were you actually had a fee to go along with it? That's really a. a Great question. And so the answer to the question, if anybody actually wants to do the same approach, is that it's incredibly negotiable, right? right. And um, I've been paid as much as $6,000 to do a session, but I've also been paid zero, you know, where I said, you know, you know, I understand the circumstance. If it's a, let's say it's a local chapter of an association, a lot of times they don't have a lot of money. You know, I'll, I'll do a pro bono, but I'll still get in front of enough people to make it worth my while where I can collect the leads and all that. Uh, so it's it, it's negotiable. And, you know, on the pro bono side, you have to be careful about taking on maybe some speaking engagements that may not have a, a crowd size big enough where you definitely want to make sure you want to get some good quality leads out of it. But you don't want to talk to a small group where you you may not get any leads, right? Right. So you kind of have to evaluate the opportunity. And sometimes you have to create the opportunity. And what I mean by that, you're going to, again, you know, this is maybe a lesson in life and things I've done, but I got really methodical at, at speaking at trade shows, meaning that a lot of trade shows have call for speakers and proposals. And sometimes in some cases, it might be six to nine months out when that process happens. So I created a, an Excel spreadsheet, surprise, surprise, <laughs> on, I had a total 130 different trade shows that were related to food and beverage where I knew exactly the dates of the event when the call for proposals was were, were coming due mm -hmm. so that I could chip away at sending their proposal way in advance. So I had a head start on the competition, all the other speakers that you're going to be against. And so I ended up having that process in place so that I would have, you know, it's not too unusual that I'd put in, you know, 60 different proposals during the year and land half of those, you know, 
So, but it took some work on my part to know when those deadlines were coming up, how to write their proposal, all of that. And um, so you can't just sit back and wait for them to come to you. You really have to be proactive to go after certain events if you want to speak at. Uh, for my audience, that is a great lesson you just shared because I've been doing that and, and speaking at trade shows, speaking at associations, speaking to anybody that, that, that has the audience that you want to do business with, you have to be proactive. And, and you have to separate yourself from competition. And, and with, with you, Mark, you've got such a niche market, but that niche market is so important to the bottom line of your audience, of your customer, that, like you said, people just start handing you business cards. Now, out of that, you get, you know, so you walk away with 50 cards. All you need is one. Yes, but, uh, you know, what I'll do is I'll really evaluate the 50 cards and I'll, I'll, be proactive at, you know, the, whatever it might be, the five right. or six that I really want uh, to right. go after. You know? Right. And uh, yeah, you don't close all of them, but if you close that one, it's a big yeah. deal, you know, and uh, you mentioned the word customers. Let me just tell you about this too. So my customer, when I started was obviously the restaurant industry. So I, I really target, as much as possible, emerging chains where they have a couple locations, they're growing, but they don't have the cost controls in place. Mm-hmm. And we've done chains too, because you might be surprised how many chains grow to be 40, 50, 60 stores and still not have the proper cost controls in place. Right. Doesn't mean we're not going to do a sole location because we, we've done them, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm selective about taking those on, you know, but The whole point of where I'm getting on this is that the customer has changed. And what I mean by that is that, so if you sit back and I want you to think about this as this is my thought process too. So I'll tell you what my thought process is and you'll see where I'm going with this. So the restaurant industry is not the only industry that has food and beverage recipes, right? So we've done things like casinos, hotels, sports arenas, you can go on and on, right? Cruise ships. There's all kinds of applications where we can manage food and beverage. It's not a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And so we started really getting into microbreweries because in Ohio here, we have 304 okay. microbreweries. Now we're doing recipe costing for beer production, right? Yeah. And the restaurants that they have, right? So now we're doing, you know, you know, microbrewery concepts where we have a little bit more complex that they do actually do have a manufacturing process of, mm-hmm. uh, of a canned or keg product versus mm-hmm. the restaurant side too. You know, so what we're finding is that brewmasters are no different than culinarians. They have a lot of passion, a lot of emotion. They love their product, love what they do, but they don't always have numbers attached to them. And, and so the application, you probably would drive yourself up the wall if you thought about all the different places where food and beverage are being produced. But again, we want to create a niche. How many managerial cost accountants are in uh, craft brewing? Right. None. So the customer, you know, is changing. We're going into different areas, but it's all the same focus. Wow. At the, well, you mentioned about the breweries and stuff, and, and I used to make my own beer. 
when I started this business, I quit. You may just inspire me to go back and start doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) People, I mean, people said, why don't you start brewing your one? A friend of mine said, you get the greatest barbecue I've tasted and you make the best beer and you're a terrible CPA. Why aren't you doing this? <laughs> well, you know, you know, one thing I learned, I, I did do a small microbrewery once and I actually went through the process of making a batch of beer with them and all that. Yeah. Very, but very labor intensive. Yeah. So when I got, and it is a, a, a passion for them, but uh, when I got done with that batch of beer, I kind of said, you know, I, I'm never going to make my beer again. I'm going to buy it because it's so incredibly <laughs> labor intensive, right? Yeah, yeah la- labor and time. It takes about a month. From start yeah, to finish. yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's so many stories that well, I'm going to have to have you back on because uh, there, there's so many other stories that I know that you have that from an entrepreneurial perspective that I'd love to tap into. And, and and dig a little bit deeper. You, you brought up the, 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 the phrase of the day are the two words, my new two words moving forward that I've never heard this used before is menu engineering. Yeah. So you've never heard of that term before? I, I've never heard I've never heard of that term, but I understand the term, but I've never yes. heard of the term before. So you know, think of it as another way to look at cost, volume, profit, right? right. It's a different way of doing it, but it's a little different in that. When we engineer a menu, you know, it's called menu engineering, but it's it's greater than that. It's actually category engineering. So if you look at a menu and you see an appetizer section, we're looking at those six appetizers and we're, we're analyzing performance and we are looking at profitability. We want to make sure that we have the highest profitability items on each category. So every category, when we do a menu change, we're really making methodical decisions about what is coming off and, and what's going on. And so one of the things that we we do as an example is that if something is making the smallest amount of profit, that's, that's really one we're gonna to target to take off. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's not always about the numbers, right? And we're in a field that has passion, emotion, creativity. And, mm-hmm. and so you do have to go to these owners sometimes and say, look, we really think this is the item to take off. And they might say, this has happened before, a funny story, mm-hmm. is uh, that's my mother's recipe from from decades or from her grandmother right, or her mother, you know, and it goes back for generations and they're like, well, there's no way I'm going to take that off. I go, well, this is a business, right? If you're in it for a hobby, you're in the wrong business. Right. And uh, so it's all about, it is partially about the numbers, but sometimes there's that emotion that yeah. drives some of the decision that you have to have to address. Yeah. And so every category needs to be engineered. And the, the, the thing that we want to make sure of is that we increase our chances for profitability. And what I mean by that is when we develop a new product, let's just pretend that we brought, took an item off and the profit on that item was $3, right? Per plate. When we put a new item on, the one thing that we don't want to do is decrease our chances for profitability. So if we put an item on that has a greater per profit item per plate, mm-hmm. it increases our chances. Right? But if we put an item on that only makes $2 per plate in place of the one we just took off, what do you have to do? 
You have to sell more, right, right to make right, up right. for that difference. Right. And so it's incredibly methodical in terms of the numbers they use, but even the placement. So when you go to a restaurant, and I know a lot of restaurants don't do this, and if I had a menu in front of me, I could show you, but how we lay out the menu and where we put the menu items really matters. There's actually what's called an eye gaze study that, that scientifically states how a person reads a menu, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, right? Mm -hmm. So where we place the menu items really has an impact on profitability. So the way I do it is that every category I put the most profitable item up on top in descending order, right? Mm -hmm. And the waiter or waitress has that suggestive selling capability. Right. They don't need to know the, the numbers, but they are, and they do have a high impact and profitability. So if they knew that the best selling product in each category was on top going down in descending order, they're actually the people that are going to help drive the profitability of the company. Right. So it, it, it's, it's a lot of different things, a lot of different points, and, you know, and you can talk all, we can talk all day about menu design and readability and all that, but where we put it on the menu and which items we put on or take off, those are critical decisions for the company that need to be made and they gotta be done methodically. Man, that's fascinating. I, I, now I will never look at a menu the same way. Yeah, ever I'll give you another piece of that. So you, when we talk about when I go into a new client, but this is not, I'll ask you this question because you've eaten out enough, right? <laughs> um, have you ever gone to a restaurant and had trouble making a decision on what to get because of the sheer quantity of menu items they have? <laughs> I won't mention the restaurants, but yes. Right, right. So I tell my students, you know, when they, I want them to bring menus into my class, right? Yeah. And I, say, I want you to count the number of menu items. So a student will bring one in and let's say they have 80 menu items. And I'll ask them, do you think that location can really produce consistently with the same quality, those menu items? And the answer every time is no, I don't think they can. It's too complex. So the idea is that we shrink the menu. It's called menu rationalization. That's mm -hmm. the technical term for it. But we shrink it because we want to have higher quality consistency and efficiency, mm -hmm. right? You know, one of the best menus I've seen in town, and there's a, quite a few of them here, 101 Beer Kitchen, if you've ever gone there, and you mm -hmm. look and you count those that menu, mm -hmm. maybe 25, maybe less yeah, items yeah. listed, right? Well, they have high consistency, high quality. It's very executable. You know, so when I see a menu that has 25, 30 items, mm -hmm. that's really where we need to be. And the other thing this translates to is that uh, if you ever read descriptions on a menu, I can, I'm very good at telling when things are house made just from the descriptions on the menu. Right. And so when I see a lot of menu items on a menu, you know, I have a new client now that has like 80 and I read the descriptions and I can tell that out of those 80 menu items, they have a lot of prep to do to support it. Yeah. That sometimes relates to a lot of prep recipes, sometimes over a hundred. Mm -hmm. If you think about all the ingredients you need to support those yeah. prep recipes and the menu items, now you're well over a hundred in purchase products that you have to get to support it. Mm -hmm. 
So all of a sudden, this really goes all the way back to inventory management, too, because now instead of having these excessive inventories, if I reduce the size of the menu, I'm reducing the size of the inventories they have. Right. And by the way, the inventories are turning. They're making money for us. They're not products sitting on the shelf that one day may actually go bad because we do have shelf lives. They don't, food doesn't last forever. Right. So that this whole idea of the recipe costing and menu engineering, it has such an impact on the overall business. It's all, it's what they're all about, but they don't have a good idea of what that cost structure is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a tough business. It is a tough business. Um, So Thank you for taking time. I, this has been fascinating. Um, like I said, I'll never look at a menu the same way. Uh, and actually, I'm going to bring some of this into my classroom now. Actually, I think I'm going I'm, I'm to have my students listen to this episode. And I'm, just because a lot of them are business majors and they don't understand why, you know, that intro, those intro classes uh, into the accounting world are so important. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I did teach financial accounting back those years that are, or managerial accounting, you know, at Ohio Dominican with you way, way, way back. Yeah. You know, I was actually using food and beverage examples because they can relate to it. Right. right? And, you know, managerial accounting, if you think about it, it it's, it's a difficult course. It, it's mm-hmm. complex, but if you talk in terms of food, they, they understand it a lot more or they accept it a lot more, but even better, if you brought the food in, then it's even better, right? Cause then we can talk about, Hey, look, look what happens when we, when we process this product mm-hmm. and what happens to cost, you know? So I use, you know, sounds ridiculous, but if, if I bring a banana in front of you now and I peel the banana, that's a process. Mm-hmm. And what I have left is the peeled banana and the peel I throw out. Right. Well, couple things have happened. We just had a loss on processing the product because technically you paid for the peel. It's by weight, right? So now what I have left over, there's a yield on it, but automatically the cost goes up, right? Because I do have some waste that I can account for. But oh, by the way, it took somebody's hands to process it. It just didn't happen on its own, did it? Right. You know, that's direct labor and then we can apply overhead to it. So you can use a simple example of peeling a banana and apply all the concepts of managerial accounting. Absolutely. Um, and that's why you're so successful in the classroom as well. So we, we have to wrap up. I yeah. thank you very much. Uh, oh, by the way, you said the name of your podcast is Change Your Mind. Change Your Mindset. You Change Your Mindset. That's what this yeah. is all about. Yeah. Right? When you talk about changing an industry, that's what I'm trying to do and change yeah you know, creating a paradigm shift to completely change how people think about costs. Yeah. And you're doing a hell of a job of doing that. And like I said, I'm going to bring these examples. I'll have my students listen to this episode because I think they'll get a lot out of it and have a better understanding of why it's important to understand these types of accounting issues. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's more about it's, it's, it goes to profitability and that's what everybody in business is trying to do is be profitable. Friend, be careful, be safe out there. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. Keep driving forward. And if you ever get to Oklahoma, yeah. you got to look me up. As I say, you, you can invite me out there. Maybe we can coordinate something. Okay, absolutely. Awesome. All right, All right buddy. Thank yeah, you. Hey. Yeah, take care. I want to thank Mark for his entrepreneurial stories. And I hope his stories have sparked ideas for your entrepreneurial journey. 
remember, there are people who prefer to say yes, and there are people who prefer to say no. Those who say yes are rewarded by their adventures, and those who say no are rewarded by the safety they obtain. Be a yes person, and thank you for listening. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.